Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Earth 2 podcast, your weekly exploration of the pre-crisis DC multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters through the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us at long last. It's the end of the Sargon the Sorcerer saga. Or is it? Oh yeah, that's true, I suppose. <laughs> the conclusion of the initial Sargon the Sorcerer saga. Yes, this began... In issue 186 of The Flash, our 102nd episode, if you haven't listened to it yet. And continued in issue 207 of The Flash, our 139th episode, if you haven't listened to it. And now concludes in today's episode as we cover issue 98 of Justice League of America. Isn't that right, Peter? It most certainly is, yes. Good, I'm glad we're on the same page with that. (laughs) That would have been really awkward. So this issue 98 is actually part three of a three-part story. Sargon only turns up at the end of part two. He's featured most heavily in part three. But we're not going to read issues 96, 97 and 98 all the way through. Instead, to give us all a bit of a break, I'm going to summarise them and we're going to read all the pages that Sargon appears in because that's most relevant to the story. Isn't that right, Mm -hmm. Peter? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Amazing. Right, on a packed programme tonight. (laughs) But before that, just as a quick reminder of who Sargon is, I'm going to give you a brief overview of his prior two appearances. He first reappeared in 3 times 3 equals question mark in Flash 186, which came out, of course, in January 1969. Now, in this story, Sargon appears seemingly villainous. Mm. Now, Sargon makes contact with Professor Zoom, the reverse Flash, in the 25th century because he wants to learn the secret of time travel and thinks that Zoom can teach him it. So using his ruby of life, he breaks Zoom out of jail and brings him back to the 20th century. However, reverse Flash just wants revenge against the Flash, funnily enough. As part of this convoluted storyline, Sargon casts a spell using an extra uniform from the Flash Museum to make the Flash appear dead. And (laughs) in a pit... And discovered by children which traumatised them forever. That's right. That excellent <laughs> cover, which is a panel inside which accurately or closely replicates the cover. I love when that happens. Mm. Yeah, it's horrible. But this really annoys Zoom, who uses Sargon's own magic against him to trap Sargon into the netherworld of Chimano. That misty, green, other-dimensional place. The netherworld of Chimano is a, a sparkling bistro in Camden where two members of menswear went for lunch in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. While trapped in the netherworld of Chimano, Sargon summoned the Flash, who managed to bring them both back to Earth. In that time, Professor Zoom had been in a massive crime spree all across the world to places such as Paris. Honolulu. Madrid. Sydney. Cape Town. That'll do. That's a nice worldwide reminder. Other cities are available. (laughs) But the Flash doesn't really encounter Sargon properly, but he does end up in possession of his ruby of life. And Sargon vows to get his ruby back. So that is a silly recap of the first appearance of Sargon in the Silver Age. Now, he next appears in The Evil Sound of Music from The Flash issue 207, which came out on the 15th of April 1971. This is the one where Barry and Iris go to a rock concert. 
Oh, that was a great episode. And who are they going to see, David? Yes, that's right. They went to see Not Jefferson Airplane Honest, didn't they? That's right. That's right. They went to see Washington Starship. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> now, Grace, the singer of the band, is the niece of Sargon the Sorcerer. Mm. And Sargon's used the concert to lure the Flash into his control so he can get his ruby back. And indeed, Sargon conjures demons, which attack the crowd, the Flash into action to save them, and the Flash falls under Sargon's power. He then rushes off to grab the ruby and brings it back. Sargon then escapes, but he regrets putting his niece in danger. Is he going to remain a villain? Is this putting him on the road to redemption? Hmm, find out in this very episode. Yes, and it's worth pointing out as well, actually, that Flash 207 also has another panel which closely reflects the action on the cover. So that's a lot of fun. Yes. So bear that in mind when we describe the cover of issue 98. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, Peter, thank you for that handy recap. Always a pleasure, never a chore. Listeners, bear all that in mind if you haven't had time to, to listen to the episodes recently. So, issue 96 of Justice League of America was published on the 14th of December 1971. Story inside entitled The Coming of Starbreaker. Now, the story of issue 96 picks up in a cliffhanger from issue 94, when Flash, Green Lantern and Hawkman vanished while teleporting to the Justice League of America satellite. Superman has followed Green Lantern's SOS signal into space and finds the other heroes on the planet Ran. (gasps) Yay, we're back in Ran. Mm. You'd almost think we planned this with that Adam Strange flashback a few weeks ago. Anyway, (laughs) Superman rescues the lads from a couple of mechanical bugs and Hawkman theorises that the Justice League transporter was intercepted by a Zeta beam. Green Lantern's ring explains that on arrival, they learned that Ran was being attacked by a being called Starbreaker, who has the ability to absorb enormous amounts of energy into his body and release the energy at will does this by basically blowing up planets. Now, the word Mm. Galactus might be springing to mind. Yes. And I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. Starbreaker looks very different to Galactus. He's essentially a very tall man. He really is like a space Dracula. He's alluded to as being like a vampire at points, but he's very tall. Wears a close-fitting dark blue tunic and leggings. He has purple gloves and boots. He's a sort of little star motif on his chest. He's a, a long, dark cape, which is a purple lining. And his facial features... Imagine if Sinestro was being Dracula, basically. Oh, yeah, that's a good way He's that skin tone. He has deep sideburns. He almost has pointed teeth. He has thick eyebrows. It's Christopher Lee with a dyed centre parting, essentially. (laughs) And I can't think of anything scarier than Christopher Lee with a dyed centre parting. So anyway, Starbreaker. Starbreaker is responsible for the mechanical bugs, which are called mechanics. And they do Starbreaker's bidding by causing planets to crash into their sun, which generates energy that Starbreaker harvests via his fleet of spaceships. It also creates massive emotional turmoil by terrifying the populations of these planets, basically. And he's able to absorb that energy as well. He's not a nice man, Starbreaker. No. Superman, indeed, compares Starbreaker to a cosmic vampire. Starbreaker creates two duplicates of himself that square off against the teams that have been formed by Green Lantern and Flash and Superman and Hawkman. And there's some really nice character work for Green Lantern and Flash as Hal wonders if they're still the friends that they once were because obviously he's been off Mm. travelling around with Green Arrow and hasn't seen much of Flash recently. So it's nice that that's dealt with. True, yeah. There's a lot of good character stuff from from Mike Friedrich through these stories. The heroes defeat their respective Starbreakers and then visit Adam Strange. 
The Zeta Beam suddenly wears off and Flash, Green Lantern and Hawkman fade out and return to Earth. The duplicate Starbreakers also fade out and return to the original, who reabsorbs them before swearing to attack Earth to restore the energy he has wasted on Ran. Exciting cliffhanger. Turn to turn yes, to turn. fantastic. Yeah. We now move into JLA issue 97, published on the 20th of January, 1972, with a story entitled The Day the Earth Screams. Ah! That was Peter screaming there, listeners. Now, issue 97 begins with Hawkman describing the destruction of an alien planet by Starbreaker, very, very effectively, and Starbreaker's approach to Earth via Green Lantern's ring. Green Arrow, Black Canary, Hawkman, the Atom, Aquaman and Batman are all present and debate what to do. We get a short scene of Starbreaker blowing up the spaceship of an alien who attempted to negotiate with them. Fruitlessly, it turns out, obviously. Starbreaker then arrives on Earth and starts causing havoc by hurling buildings and skyscrapers up into the sky. Superman, Flash and Green Lantern arrive and try to stop him. Some brilliant dialogue in this sequence is Starbreaker basically takes them out, sends them away to nurse their wounds and await their doom. The JLA feels defeated and a frustrated Hawkman suggests that they examine the origin of the League to recreate the spirit that first united the team. They all go to the records library and the next 20 odd pages of issue 97 are taken up by a combination reprint retelling of the Justice League origin from issue 9. <laughs> now, I think I was loosely aware of this, but before I did my prep and read these three, these three issues through properly, I wasn't aware that it was quite as blatant as it was. Yes. I mean, it's fine for what it is. I'm not even sure if it was an anniversary, if they'd been getting published for a certain period of time at that point. But it's just, mm-hmm. you could cut those pages out quite easily and just, yeah, anyway. carry on with the story. Yeah. After viewing their origin, which obviously, if you want to read the Just League's origin, you can go off and do that. I'm not going to recap the 20-odd pages of this of their origin because it's irrelevant <laughs> to the story we're talking about. The team feels really cheered up and motivated again. And this is where we pick up the story and do some reading for you, starting at page 36 of JLA 97, panel 3. So, a conversation between Batman and Superman begins with Batman saying, I noticed, Superman, that you neglected to put into the record that priceless crack you made to honorary member Snapper Carr when he asked you. I know you can change coal into diamond by rubbing it with your super hands, but how could you change diamond into coal? And in a close-up that doesn't really flatter him at all, the Man of Steel replies saying, Oh, I was hoping no one would remember. Well, I was trying to be funny when I answered Snapper with, I simply rubbed the diamond being the wrong way. Green Lantern isn't too impressed at this when he says, Ugh, that's just about the worst one-liner soup's ever made. Batman says, Could be, but it's also the solution to our dilemma. Rub Starbreaker the wrong way. Green Arrow exclaims, What? At this point, Batman continues, We've been battling Starbreaker on physical terms, and getting beaten into so much orange pulp, yet his greatest power comes from emotional energy from men's fear of death. And Hawkman says, I catch your drift, Batman. We could harness the positive feeling of men, their life spirit. Then, perhaps we shall overcome. Green Arrow, as you'd expect, is a little bit sceptical. He says, Whoa, you're flying up around Cloud Nine. How can we do such a thing when there's no time? And then the caption for page 37, panel 3 says, Time, the twister of all things, all events, the force that splits the commonplace asunder, and, like now, brings the unexpected together. There's a sudden flash of green energy in the room, and a large red puff of smoke seems to be appearing. This prompts Aquaman to say, A cloud? 
materialising in our satellite sanctuary. And a flash exclaims in the final panel, page 37, and indeed issue 97, as a figure is revealed... Sargon the Sorcerer! Yes, and there he is in his red-caped, yellow-turbaned glory. And a caption concludes issue 97, saying... Sargon, hero or villain? A saving angel of the world or another devil to plague the earth? Agonising answers in the next issue. Yes. The next issue, of course, being issue 98 of Justice League of America, published on the 7th of March, 1972. So, because we're going to read a little bit more from issue 98, Peter is now going to tell you about the cover. Yes, again, we're at that strange period where we don't have a proper DC logo. Instead, in the top left corner, we've got a shield with an eagle at the top of it that says Mm. DC Justice League of America. Then we have the proper Justice League of America logo shield at the top. And top right-hand corner, we've got 52 big pages. Don't take less, only 25 cents. Only 25 cents. Amazing. There we are. Then the left-hand column, we have some of the roll call for this issue. And it is... Superman. Batman. Flash. Green Lantern. Black Canary. And below that, it says, Plus, Golden Age stories of Starman and Sargon. That's all what's around the main image of the cover. This is the main image. It's very exciting. Mm. Sitting inside a giant power ring, it seems, we have Green Arrow, Black Canary, Superman, Batman, and The Flash, and they're all holding hands. They're all sitting around a pentagram that seems to have a lit lamp. From it, is it some kind of seance? They're all looking up at a figure who appears to be coming out of the smoke generated by the lamp. And it looks very much like the bottom half, because you don't see his top half, <laughs> of Sargon the Sorcerer, who says, You have summoned me from beyond. And Batman is shocked. He says, Impossible. It can't be him. Very effective and exciting cover. It's the 32nd Neil Adams covered comic that we're going to properly read from. So that's quite fun. Cool. Do you know what? I bought this comic a very, very long time ago. Looking at the the address on the City Centre Comics backing boards, it says 31 mm-hmm. to 35 Parley Street, so that's before Mr. Root moved up to the back of Forbidden Planet in early 1995, which means I've owned this yes. comic probably since about 1993 or 1994, right? There we are. And I'd never noticed that they were sat inside a giant power rig before. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> until I listened to your description there, I went, oh, so they are. <laughs> You're welcome, sir. And it's interesting. Because I made a point of saying how nice it was that the covers of issue 207 and 186 of The Flash were replicated inside. But this cover, it's a bit of an extrapolation. It doesn't really quite apply to events inside, sadly. But it kind of does in a way, which you'll see as we continue. So, we're not going to read the full comic, because Sargon's involvement is sadly rather minimal. So we're going to read... Sargon's involvement, and I'm going to summarise the rest of it. So it's a bit, bit of an easy one for us this week, listeners, but I'm sure you don't mind. So, our opening splash panel is very, very dynamic. It almost picks up from the, the end of issue 97. We see Sargon standing, surrounded by clouds of smoke and the Justice League looking on. There is a hecking huge amount of captioning, which Peter's going to now walk us through. Superman, Batman, Flash, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Black Canary, Hawkman, Aquaman, Atom... Vaunted heroes of the Justice League of America have battled the malevolent cosmic vampire Starbreaker and lost miserably. Regrouping their forces, the Justice Leaguers prepare for a powerful united push against their murderous foe when 
A new player suddenly looms upon the stage. Yes, and as the heroes all stand and look at the new arrival, the Flash exclaims the name of this interloper. Sargon the Sorcerer. And the captioning continues. Today is D for Destruction Day. When the sun passes from the sky this evening, there'll be for Earth no No more tomorrows. tomorrows. And another caption tells us the creative team for this story. Julie Schwartz, editor. Dick Dillon Pencils, Mike Friedrich Scripts, Jogiella Inks. Awesome. So, into the story properly. The first panel of page two. Sargon is standing. You can see Black Canary, Flash and Superman looking at him. Black Canary puts a finger to her lips and says, Sargon? Don't believe I've heard of... Oh, wasn't he a ruler in ancient Mesopotamia? To which the Flash replies, Could be Black Canary, but this guy used to be a superhero way back when we were kids. Only recently, however, I've had a couple of run-ins with him which looked rather suspicious. The Atom bounds into view at this point, saying, That's enough for me. Call me short or call me tempered, but right now we've got an entire planet to save, and we've no time for another two-bit smoke razor. As he flies towards Sargon in the next panel, Sargon raises his arms, gestures and says, Nor I, for a fly-off-the-handle dust moat. Be away! There's a burst of golden energy, and the Atom goes flying. Sargon thinks, Since my ruby of life controls all it touches, I have no trouble magicking the very air itself. Ah, so that's what he's done. It's air currency he's created. The atom goes flying. Black Canary helpfully catches him in panel four as Superman lunges forward, saying, I don't know what your game is, Sargon, but you won't escape a grip of steel. And that's given emphasis in panel five as he grabs Sargon by the wrist. But as Superman grasps Sargon, a golden aura develops him. Surrounds them both, actually, as Sargon says, As you see, Superman, touching me was a mistake. My magic countershocks your superpowers. First panel of page three, the Flash says, You can't hope to overpower us forever, Sargon. Green Lantern says, Sooner or later, we'll break through your defences. Green Arrow says, And when we do, to which Sargon says, I've come not to quarrel, but to help. Despite our differences, we have a common enemy. Starbreaker. Great shot of Green Arrow pulling an arrow back on his bow as he says, Really? What would you know? How could you know what it's like to go up against a cosmic vampire who finishes off solar systems for snacks, who's drained the life energies from countless victims and become the most powerful being in the galaxy? When he attacked Earth, he toyed with our three most powerful members like playthings. That defeat sent us non-powered leaguers on a super downer. And as Oliver has said all of that, there's been a nice montage of Starbreaker looking evil and attacking buildings and looming over Green Lantern, Flash and Superman. Green Arrow continues, And it took Hawkman calling up memories of our origin, of how we fought as a team, to bring us up again. Aquaman joins in, shaking a fist at Sargon and saying, Green Arrow's right. We're charged up now, and nothing's going to stop us. Listeners, if you can't remember why Aquaman sounds like Sean Connery, go back to our early 2021 episode. From Ogre with Hate. Yes, that deals with Aquaman and the Huntress. Yes, that's right, I've just been reminded of the singing how torturous it was to try and easily (laughs) describe the magnificence of Nick Cardi's artwork. That took us years to record. Anyway, (laughs) if you're wondering why Aquaman sounds like he does, that episode explains it. So, top of page four, it's a nice moody shot of Sargon as he says, Battling Starbreaker on physical terms is futile. His greatest power comes from draining emotional energy from mankind's fear of death. It is on the emotional plane that the struggle exists, and there you require the help of my magical powers. Hawkman and Batman look thoughtful. Hawkman says, Batman, how do you figure Sargon knows all this stuff? Mystery to me, Hawkman, but 
We'd reached the same conclusions ourselves. Despite G.A.'s misgivings, I'm for trusting him. Sargon has lifted, at least it looks like he's lifted, his ruby out of his turban for emphasis in this next panel. Holding it between finger and thumb, it glows as he says, Thank you, Batman. Now to perform the necessary magic, we need a doorway, a key. My ruby of life has two counterparts around the world. Gather all three together, and we'll at least have a bare chance in our struggle. Are you with me? Green Arrow says in the next panel, The consensus seems to go with Sargon, but I'll keep my doubts. To which Sargon says, Very well then. Aquaman, Black Canary, you will go to the Latin American Highlands for the second ruby. Batman, Hawkman, the location of the third is Central Europe. It's a great panel that actually, because we can see the other heroes reacting almost with surprise at what Sargon's saying. But the final panel of page four is a fantastic shot of all the assembled heroes in silhouette, as Aquaman says, Huh? The tropics? I'll be a fish out of water. Black Canary says, Yes! Why pick any of us for these tasks? To which Sargon replies, No time for questions. The weavings of time and space ordain your missions. You must depart now. The rest of you leaguers must stay. We need to make massive preparations. So, as I said at the top, we're not reading the full story. Part two continues. It features Aquaman and Black Canary and concerns political trouble in tropical Sierra Verde. The second ruby is worn by President Valdez in a ring. Black Canary and Aquaman get involved in a fight between some gorillas and farmers' local political trouble. Canary's blonde wig falls off. Gasp. And she's mistaken for the president's wife. You can bet your backside, listeners, that that panel is going in the socials. Meanwhile, an exhausted Aquaman is revived by a rainstorm. And with the help of some walking catfish, he sees off the bad guys. Peter's laughing as I read this. <laughs> I'm, I'm managed to give a straight face. This is look, It's just the facts. It's just what happens. Blame Mike Friedrich. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. So much awesomeness. El Presidente achieves a diplomatic solution to his problems and thanks Arthur and Dinah for their help by giving them the ruby. In part three, Batman and Hawkman arrive in Germany, southern Germany, and get involved with movie star Brick Ford, which I think is supposed to be Rock Hudson. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. that was what sprung to mind, given some of the things that he talks about in his behaviourals. Okay. Brick is experiencing a crisis of confidence after being threatened by a Open inverted commas, commie arms runner, close inverted commas. And he's worried that his lucky charm has stopped working because he's a bit wary about doing his own stunts. And of course, the lucky charm is the third ruby. As Brick's brother Jimmy subs for Brick in a stunt involving a car jumping over an exploded bridge, Batman and Hawkman deal with the men sent to kill Brick. The stunt is successfully filmed. The happy and more confident Brick gives the leaguers his lucky charm. They're always after his lucky charms. And we now return to the story to read pages 15 and 16. A caption at the top of this page tells us that we're at No, no More, More Tomorrow's, Tomorrow's Part, Part four. 4. And it's another moody shot of Sargon the Sorcerer with his ruby glowing in his turban. He seems to be standing in front of a version of the John Pertwee Doctor Who title sequence. <laughs> and he's thinking to himself thoughtfully, Time! How its mystic tapestry fascinates me. But in following its puzzling pattern, I have blinded myself to the border separating right from wrong. I cannot ignore my recent turn to villainy. I have responsibilities to my world, to my fellow beings, to my soul, and I must meet them. From this moment on, 
My life is dedicated to the rebirth of a superhero. Well, that's nice and helpful. Panel 2 of page 15. We see Green Lantern slumped in a chair. And the Atom is standing in Sargon's open right hand. Sargon is saying, Atom, you have your instructions. Everything must be timed perfectly. Green Lantern, move! There is no time for repose. Sargon continues in the final panel of page 15. Use your power ring to recall our global ruby seekers. Their time-ordained searches have ended. Green Lantern looks a bit weary as he says, Okay, Sargon, but I can't figure how you can be so sure they're finished. But after the back-breaking preparations you've put us through, you must know what you're doing. And we arrive at top of page 16. A caption says, As Black Canary, Aquaman, Hawkman and Batman return to the satellite headquarters, a sudden shock of tension charges the air. Sargon gestures and says, The Nexus has arrived. Quickly, Green Lantern, enlarge your ring. Keep it clean, listeners. Yes, in this panel we see Green Lantern expanding his power ring to, basically to table size. Yeah, it's a lovely coffee table he's got there. Yeah. The flat surface that would normally just be visible on his on his digit, growing. The other heroes stand around and watch. In panel two, he's successfully achieved this. It's massive. It's huge. And coming soon from DC Direct. <laughs> yes, Green Lantern Power Ring Coffee Table. Can you imagine? At Warner Brothers <laughs> Studio Stores now. Sargon says in panel two, Canary Hawkman, place your rubies in contact with mine. And he puts his ruby down on the Green Lantern table. Canary leans forward and places the ruby she acquired from El Presidente onto the tabletop, and Hawkman leans forward and places the one that they got from Brick Ford. Sargon continues. Now, all gather round. Within these mystic gems surges the only force mankind can use to overcome its death fears. Love power! We shall link this source of energy with Green Lantern's power ring, together with the futuristic weaponry Hawkgirl has assembled in her Thanagarian spacer. And we see a great shot of Hawkgirl in her Thanagarian spacer, where she says, Ready when you are, Sargon. Sargon continues in the next panel. Along with the myriad of alien power banks in Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And we see Supergirl looking very dark and moody, leaning over a computer desk as she says, Supergirl here. Everything's set to go. Final panel of page 16, we see the assembled heroes standing around Green Lantern's power ring table, green energy flaring all around them. Sargon concludes, To be finally channeled through the psycho-emotional translators constructed here by Justice League scientists Flash and Atom. Only the combined might of science and magic can possibly strike down Starbreaker, wherever he may be. And the caption runs out page 16 saying, The tension crackles forth, cresting higher and higher in a wave of surging, seething power. But will it be enough? We find Starbreaker on the outskirts of Central City where he's almost ready to destroy the Earth. He spots the jelly rushing towards him and he also notices the strange glow surrounding them all. He suddenly feels himself start to weaken and has the idea to split and scatter the League through time to make it easier for him to fight them. Green Lantern, Black Canary and Hawkman are sent 1,000 years into the past where Starbreaker attacks and surrounds them in fire. The Flash, Green Arrow and Aquaman are sent into the future where Flash recognises the central city of 2972 that he visited in Flash issue 203 or C-hour episode The Flash's Wife's a Two-Timer. Starbreaker appears there and draws all the heat out of the air, which causes ice to form on the bodies of the heroes. It's a cracking shot of Flash, Green Arrow and Aquaman with like little white beards. They look like little old men. It's very funny. <laughs> it might end up on the socials if there's room. In the past, Green Lantern and Hawkman are able to overcome their Starbreaker, and Black Canary knocks him out with a nerve pinch. 
Meanwhile, the Flash finds himself able to nullify the cold, and he vibrates Arthur and Ollie back to normal, Aquaman being revived by the water, obviously, and Green Lantern takes their Starbreaker out with an arrow to the chest. Gasp. Very, very interesting shot, that one. In the present, Superman and Batman confront a weakened Starbreaker. Superman shrugs off the rubbish and debris and old cars that Starbreaker hurls at him, proclaiming that the madder I get, the stronger I get. We're going to talk about that in a minute. (laughs) Starbreaker panics and runs off, encountering Batman, who terrifies him into almost submission before knocking Starbreaker out with a punch. Starbreaker expires beside a sign advertising tonight's last performance. The Vampire. So I don't know if that was a cinema or a theatre or something, but it's obviously very heavily handed. And we return now to read from page 24. A massive caption box at the top of this page says... Endings. We're inside the satellite. The heroes are all stood around. Batman, it seems, is saying... Well, we're all together again in our headquarters like it never really happened. It seems that Aquaman is saying... Yet, it seems so real... And then Sargon says, It was real. We were all shifted along the currents of time. Past, future, present. But you returned to now, without any passage of time at all. There remains one more task. To sorcerize Starbreaker. Drain him of every last trace of destructive power still lingering within his body. And we see the heroes stood around the Green Lantern power ring table again. Starbreaker standing in the centre of the table. A mild gold aura surrounds him as Sargon places his hands on the table in front of him. A caption for panel three. A final time, the Justice League draws upon its symbolic energies, combining its great dedication with a literal world of love, righting untold galactic wrongs. Starbreaker seems to recoil, almost in pain. The narration continues. And who's to say if not the last vestiges of a trillion star-broken souls turned their dying fears into a final trust as well? Pardon? <laughs> yeah. So the final panel of page 24 is captioned. And thus it ends. Queen Lantern has shrunk his power ring back down to normal. It's back in his hand. He's gesturing and Starbreaker is floating in the air in front of him, surrounded by a green aura. Green Lantern says, The Guardians have a special interest in Starbreaker because of his galaxy-wide crimes. They'll deal him his due justice. Standing at the other side of the panel, beside our Golden Age guest star, Green Arrow says to him, Guess I was wrong about you, Sargon, but I'm sure glad to be alive to apologise. That takes us to the first panel of page 25, where Green Lantern says, What still puzzles me is why Starbreaker chose to fight us in three different time periods. Flash says, Yes, that split was a major factor in our victory. And suddenly the atom appears. He seems to be jumping off of Starbreaker's nose as he says, That's easily explained, Green Arrow exclaims. The Atom, Brad Canary says, Oh, we overlooked his absence here. And the Atom stands in Superman's hand at panel two and says, Sargon and Superman worked out a plan to fire Atom-sized me into Starbreaker's brain, where my biological know-how would implant a magical suggestion onto his thought patterns. While Starbreaker was present in each time period, Sargon's chronal magic casts weakening spells upon the cosmic vampire, strengthening spells upon you. To which Flash says, Adam's actions confirm a suspicion I have, that magic is merely undiscovered science. To which Hawkman says, Perhaps, Flash, science may be just unacknowledged magic. And the heroes all stand in a nice neat line, the final panel of the story, as Batman says, 
Sounds like an unsolvable mystery to me. For the time being, what is clear is, this adventure has reached the, the end. end. Gosh. Well then, listeners, hope that was okay for you. <laughs> As a story redeeming Sargon and clarifying Sargon, it was a little bit... Non-Sargon-y at the end. Yes. It reminded me of the Vigilante story. Yeah. Sorry, the Justice League Vigilante story we covered a while back, where Vigilante had a whole reintroduction and then played no part in the actual <laughs> of course. final battle, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. You'd almost have expected Sargon to sweep in at the last minute and gesture and fight with Starbreaker and sort of mm. mm-hmm. reactualize himself as being a hero. But I suppose the fact that he sent everyone to fight maybe has something more to do with that. Wasn't it nice to have the little throwback to Central City from the future? That was quite cool. Yeah, that was a cool little uh, little Easter egg there for the for fans. That's cool. Mm-hmm. However, there wasn't an editor's note saying, see, Flashy's uh, adventure in, which is a bit weird for the time. No, we just sort of assumed it was It was really cool. That, I mean, I recognised it, obviously, and Baddy recognised it. Um, that was uh-huh. pretty cool. I have to say, I, like, I did like that. Mm-hmm. As I say, I was amused by Superman's the madder he gets, the stronger he gets dialogue, because <laughs> that reminds me of someone else. If only there had been a colouring error on that page, that would have been hilarious. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> this episode almost borders on perfunctory, but it was, it, we figured it was the best way to sort of cover it. Sargon has come back. Mm-hmm. He's helped the Just League with this massive battle to save Earth over a story, which unusually really is told over three issues. Yeah, with a big bit of filler in the middle. Yeah. There's almost this sort of soap opera serialised thing that Friedrich's been doing. Yeah. The teleporter accident with the three guys at the start, that happens at the end of issue 94, but then it's mm-hmm. issue 95 tells the story of Johnny June, and then it, it comes back. So it's it's almost the Claremont method. Yes, uh-huh. You know, developing before our eyes of juggling subplots and fading up yeah. plots and fading down other plots and focusing on other stories. So it was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I said, just a bit unsatisfying as far as Sargon's involvement. It would have been nice to, to have him making a, a more physical contribution. Yeah. It is really weird comparing the three Sarkon stories from this time, because this is obviously the third one of his reintroduction, as it were. Because mm-hmm. in his first one, he's saying, I'm going to be an out-and-out villain, and but well, I am an out-and-out villain, and I want to master time travel. Yeah. The second one, he's still being villainous, but looking to get his ruby back, but uh, then has that whole moment where it's like, oh, I endangered my niece's life, and maybe I should reconsider this. Yes. And it's like, well, we don't know what his motivation ever was for being a villain other than to learn time travel. And in which case, why does he have to be a villain to do that? Yeah, he wanted to learn time travel, but he was able to contact the reverse flash in the 25th century. So he yeah. must have had some idea about time travel. Hmm. Yeah. What you got do? Hey, what you got do? <laughs> but it's fascinating looking at that. And obviously, you know, this is the start of Sargon's big reintroduction because after this, he's got his own spin-off series. He's in the Justice League constantly. He's in everything. Yes. That's right. We're absolutely sick of the sight of him. Sargon bumper stickers. Yeah. Yeah. Sargon the movie, obviously, <laughs> which came out in 1975 and defined superhero films for a modern generation. That memorable run of stories he had in adventure comics, <laughs> weird adventure comics, where the, the kind of controversial Fleischer and Jim Apparel ones where Sargon was dispatching bad guys by <laughs> turning them into candles and setting them on fire or, you know, chopping them up with, with, um, with scissors or whatever. This is the beginning of the Sargon era proper. Yes, listeners, we're lampooning you. It's, <laughs> none of that happened. <laughs> It's it's such a wasted opportunity because he is yes. brought back in such a way and built up in this way. And it's like, all right, Kate, and it's quite interesting. And obviously, you know, mm-hmm. the heroes were listening to him. Mm-hmm. He gave them an off-panel boot camp yes. while he sent the other ones off in missions. Enough to have Green Lantern sit- sitting exhausted. I thought, was he doing what, squat thrusts, push-ups? What was he doing? Very strange. 
But, I mean, that was the guest hero of the story, but we should talk about the villain as well. Yes. Because Starbreaker's fascinating. Starbreaker is, as you said, he's like Galactus, and he's hardly ever used. He did come back uh, much later on, I think. Was he in Jelly Year One or something? I'm sure he was around about then. I couldn't remember, to be honest. I couldn't remember if he'd ever came back. I'd been looking through the old Justice League Companion published by Two Morrows Publishing. Uh-huh. All the way back in 2005, that has an interview with Mike Friedrich. Ah. The interviewer says, let's talk about Starbreaker, and says he was a very mm-hmm. powerful villain. You said a moment ago it was only the end of your run that you introduced a, a major villain. Starbreaker appeared in a three-part story. Any theories on why he didn't reappear later? <laughs> now, this is quite funny. It's so many interviews that, that have taken place, and, and this is not meant to slag them off or diminish the work that Tomorrow's Publishing have done. Yeah. But it's quite often, you got used to the very early on the, the revived alter ego of Roy Thomas sort of saying, Stan, when you did this, did you think blah, 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 or did you think this blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Hey, Roy, I wrote this story 30 years ago. I can't remember anything about it whatsoever <laughs> at all. So there's a kind of thing here with Mike when Mike Friedrich replies, no, you, you can ask all my successors as to why Starbreaker didn't come back. The interviewer says, Starbreaker had the legs to become a major menace. Friedrich replies, I certainly created the character with the intention of him becoming an ongoing villain. Yeah. I do not think of him as a one-shot. The reason I think his story went for three issues was because I started seeing a lot more possibilities. I don't think I planned it as a three-issue series to begin with. I was really just sort of writing from issue to issue, although I'm not really clear on that. It could have been planned that way. I just don't remember. Because he's talking about events 30-odd years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. But I definitely remember that I thought of this character as somebody who could go on. I was already thinking of new ideas that I never got to write. They discuss the incorporation of the Justice League origin. Mm-hmm. Mike claims the idea for it. Um, he was aware that, the, that DC was reprinting a lot of stuff at this time, so he decided to make it more interesting. And they do touch upon Sargon. Right. As the interviewer says, you included Sargon in JLA 98 after reintroducing him as a villain in The Flash two years earlier. While Sargon received honorary JLA membership, did he? I must have missed that part. He rarely appeared again. Did you have unrealized plans for the character? (laughs) And Mike helpfully says, ah yes, here's one where I really don't remember this much at all. (laughs) I reread the story and I still don't remember it. You tell me I reintroduced him as a villain in The Flash. I don't remember that either. He laughs. I will say that I had an affinity for Satana. I first got connected to Julie by writing letters of comment, blah, blah, blah. Okay. He talks about how Zatara was similar to Sargon, but he didn't remember bringing Sargon back as a villain. Yeah. I remember making him a good guy in this story, and I would have done that mm-hmm. on purpose, but I really don't remember much about it at all. So there we go, from the horse's mouth. <laughs> there we are. Listeners, don't say we do all the, the research for you. and speaking of research i quickly looked up starbreaker and it wasn't justice league year one it was justice league america shortly after the bwahaha era that he appeared for about four issues oh yes that's a long time in the future yeah and he appeared in secret files and origins and adam strange and all sorts of things so yeah he has returned every now and then, but certainly not uh, pre-crisis. I might have to have a look at those Justice League issues and mm. dig them out and post them as content. That might be amusing. Mm-hmm. I found it really interesting as well at the end that uh, Hal Jordan says the Guardians will be interested in him because of all his crimes. Yeah, certainly. Why are the Green Lanterns not investigating the fact this guy's going from planet <laughs> yeah. to planet, destroying them? Yeah. That sounds yeah. like something you know, that a Guardian of a universe would want to get involved with. Yes, why weren't the Guardians <laughs> on it straight away? Yeah. Send a bunch of Green Lanterns to take him down immediately. That's a really good point. It probably didn't occur yeah. to Mike Friedrich to the end. You know, Oh, I can, <laughs> how am I going to get rid of him? I know, we can send him, we can have him. Yeah. yeah, Green Lantern can take him. 
and someone might have said, and, and he obviously did that on the second last page, so there wasn't room for mm-hmm. anyone to ask the question that Peter just asked. Yeah. Another thing I found really interesting was Flash introduced Sargon as a hero from when we were kids. Yes, yes. Now that's interesting. That's There was a point there I wanted to discuss because Black Canary, mm. not long over from Earth 2, well actually she's been over for a few years at this point, Black Canary uh-huh. of Earth 2 has no obvious recognition of him. Very true. Very true. So that backs up our theory that we postulated when we did the earlier Sargon stories, that he'd only been active on Earth 1, mm-hmm. that he was not a between-Earth migrant, as it were. Yeah, there is no reference to Earth 2 at all in any of his stories. No. None at all. In fact, Kerry doesn't know him, but the Flash, Barry Allen the Flash, knows of him as being a superhero when he was a kid on Earth yeah. 1. Mm-hmm. There we go. And it's only later on that this stuff gets contradicted and gets made messy, and God, we yes. can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> in your favourite story of all time, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm, Peter's going to be doing that episode on his own, listeners. You're just going to hear me <laughs> shout, shouting and swearing from another room. All the way through it. I actually read that this morning. <laughs> right. In, in preparation for this, uh-huh. just to see uh, how things play out. But for those of you who don't know, we're referring to Justice League of America issues 219 and 220. Is that correct? I think that's right, yeah. yeah. It's a controversial story, mm-hmm. uh, but Sargon appears in the second part of it. So, yes, I was uh, mm-hmm. just doing some extra Sargon research. Yes. It's going to be a really interesting one when we get there in eight years' time. Yes. In a few years' time, yeah, and obviously when we get to that episode, we'll remind you to listen to this episode and the other Sargon stories. Oh, the Sargon stories. Given Sargon's, you know, involvement in the story, it's, it's interesting there's also an adventure from Sensation Comics issue 70. Yes. Reprinted, The Woman Who Wanted the World. Another excellent Sargon story. Yes. With his sidekick, Max. A whole five pages worth. Yeah. So if you have your copy of JLA 98 to hand listeners, you can read that. It's a lot of fun. She looks a little bit like Shadow Lass, this blue llama, this baddie. I was thinking the same thing, Legopolis, yes. Yeah. I wonder, when we write our DC comic, we'll reveal that she's from Shadow Lass's home planet and all that. There's also a, a backup Starman story featuring Ted Knight. The Three Comets. Yeah, which our pal Ross will doubtless cover before too long on Opal City Confidential. Make sure you check mm. that out. Which we've both been on recently, so yes. And that's from, what, Adventure 92? So you'll probably get to that in a, in a few months, I would think, the, at the current rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've said in the past that if we had all the time in the world, if we didn't have to work <laughs> or eat or sleep, <laughs> we probably we probably would have started a Patreon or something to do these Golden Age reprints yeah. all separately and stuff. But, you know, there isn't enough time in the world, sadly. But, you know. They are fantastic, and we do urge you to check them out because they're good fun. And it was a great way of actually getting the Golden Age material then because you couldn't find it anywhere. Absolutely. And even now, like some stuff, you know, there's not an awful lot of Sargon stuff that I'm aware of. So, you know, there's never been a Sargon archive or omnibus. So... No, there's nothing. So... Now that we've rabbited on for a while, listeners, we're going to look at the contemporary correspondence. We are turning to the pages of Just the League of America, issue 101, which obviously we'll be covering at some point in the future. The JLA mailroom, the first letter, goes like this. Dear Editor, the Starbreaker stories have been Mike Friedrich's best works for JLA to date. A villain of such power and scope is well worth an extended several-issue yarn, and well worth the attention of the reader. Would you believe that issue 97 actually frightened me? This creep really was going to destroy the world and the Justice League couldn't do Jack Diddley about it. Gosh. Rather good writing on Mike's part to create a situation that so moved his most critical reader. Me! (laughs) So in issue 98, the epic ended. A little weakly, I thought, at the very climax, but involving some good scenes. The situations in No More Tomorrows were well presented, though... 
The general depiction of commie revolutionaries as the bad guys carried a snippet of Cold War pucky into the pages that I could have done most easily without. It was neat that the rubies should come to the jailers through gifts. And I liked the division of the league into teams, an old Gardner Fox technique that Mike carried off very well. Yes, that was good actually. We should maybe talk about how unusual it was to have Aquaman and Black Canary teamed up together. That was diverting. Yeah, it was good fun. Yeah. Very good fun. The letter continues. Trundled off less well was the final defeat of Starbreaker. Mike puts far too much emphasis in his stories on the mystical powers of love and truth and beauty and all sorts of good shticks, and it smothers the reader in good vibes. Bothersome indeed, the trick of Atom entering Starbreaker's brain to mess with the cosmic vampire's thought patterns just did not sound at all convincing. Such a powerful critter, such dubious science. Well... And that's from Guy H. Lillian III from Greensboro, North Carolina. Editorial response. Well, what? Do we go to the well with Mike Friedrich too often? Let's drop our critical bucket a couple more times and see what comeuppance we come up with from Julie Schwartz. That's interesting. We didn't, we didn't really talk too much about that. About the atom. Yeah, it was obviously the period for, for Raymond to be going inside people's brains and leaping about. <laughs> Not far off that excellent Brave and the Bold story. Yeah, it's quite bizarre. Um... But okay, um, obviously he's been given some sort of mystical map to find the right bit of his brain to push. Yeah. It's not like he shrunk down and was whispering in his ear. That would have been a, you know, I think this is the voice of your conscience. And it was flagged up with that scene with Sargon talking to, to Atom and Green Lantern. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't totally out of nowhere or anything. Yeah. It was still a bit, hmm. But I, I agree with the point about Mike Friedrich putting too much emphasis on in his stories in this yeah. very late 60s, early 70s idyllic sense that everyone's on the same page and all that. And mm. it's like, man, come on. We have had that a lot. You're so naive. And anyway, the next letter reads, Dear Editor, Mike Friedrich's Starbreaker epic was, despite its flaws, one of the best Justice League stories in years. What saved it was its conceptual strength and allegorical significance. Mike transcended his usual concern with relevance and produced what is probably his best script ever. <laughs> Don't let that go to your head, though. I've got a couple of brickbats to throw. First and foremost, this story should never have been stretched over three issues. The middle instalment, incorporating the JLA's origin story, was skillfully handled in a technical sense, but it did almost nothing to advance the conflict with Starbreaker. Instead, it markedly reduced the dramatic impact of that conflict. I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. It's a tribute to the quality of its concept that the story survived this dilution. As for brickbat number two... The opening sequence of No More Tomorrows was terrible, though the beautifully done finale more than made up for it. That's a, mm, harsh. There was absolutely no reason for the Justice League assault on Sargon the Sorcerer. The Justice Leaguers are superheroes, not super morons. And that's from Stephen Barry, Burlington, Massachusetts. No editorial response, so Peter's no. going to read the next letter. Yes, the final letter says, Dear Editor, the latest GLA try, the old give him a cataclysmic earth-shattering three-part epic to shake him up trick, Simply <laughs> fell flat in its face in issue 98. First off, the cover was terrible. The symbolism was quite nice, but not what usually would be considered misleading. But the artwork was horrendous, as was the interior art. Hmm, I disagree on that. Finally, we come to the most important part, the scripting. I was expecting a sensational climax to make the first two issues worthwhile, and I was sorely disappointed. First of all, there's no major gimmick. The heroes simply went out with a semi-solid pep talk aura to back them up. And because of this, they win. 
where before they had been beaten soundly. And after all these mysterious remarks about preparations, Friedrich sticks in that part about the atom on the last page, as though he almost forgot about it. But by far the worst part was the blurbs. Instead of just a heavy action sequence, he insists on ruining it with verbose insights into the workings of the criminal mind, such as the ones on page 23. If there's a better way to kill a mood, I sure don't know what it is. Mr Schwartz, you'd better drag up somebody else to script this magazine. And that's from Perry Bider from Oak Park, Michigan. Crikey. There's no editorial response to that one either, so that's it for the contemporary correspondence. But that doesn't stop you from telling us what you think of this story and indeed our coverage of it. You can email us at theathtopodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you follow us on social media because we'll be putting up some lovely bonus content for you this week and indeed every week. On Facebook and Instagram, we're at the Earth 2 Podcast, and on Twitter, we're at podcast underscore Earth 2. And it's the number two for all our social media. And as I always say at this point, go and write us a nice review, that'd be kind. Go and buy us a price of a coffee, that'd be kind. Make sure you do check out the socials, because we have some foreign covers, some other Sargon content, and now that Peter has reminded us of the Starbreaker's reappearance, maybe I'll go and dig those covers out as well. That could be nice, couldn't it? Mm. Certainly could. Or you could even send us a voicemail. Just go to speakpipe.com forward slash the Earth 2 podcast and you can actually tell us what you think of this story. <laughs> yeah, no one's done that at all. Yes, listeners, you could be the first person to leave us a, a message on Speakpipe or whatever it's called. That could be you. And then we could play it on the episode and you'd be able to tell your pals and get your mum to listen to it and it'd be really exciting. It would be good. So you should, shouldn't they? Absolutely, yes. I spent minutes setting that up. Minutes. Minutes, listeners. Minutes that he could have spent preparing and editing other episodes, but no. Maybe are. Anyway, Sargon, we'll see you again at some point soon. On that bombshell. I've been Peter. And I've been David. And we'll see you again very soon on... The F2 Podcast. Podcast. Transmatter cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime. Panel 2, page 15. Green Lantern sat slumped in a chair. Aquaman is standing. Not Aquaman. <laughs>